It was Seneca, the old philosopher, who once said, We are always complaining that our days are few. Yet at the same time, he said, acting as if they would never end. There is great wisdom in that. Always complaining that our days are few, and yet at the same time acting as if our days would never end. In other words, that we have all the time in the world. Do you complain that your days are few but live like they aren't? Well, I think this passage in front of us is really a wonderful one that speaks to the whole issue of timing as we see it in Jesus' life. Let's read through it down to verse 13 from John 7, 1, where we read, After these things, which is about six months after the feeding of the 5,000, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea. So for a six, seven-month period, he was there with his disciples. Because the Jews sought to kill him, there was a reason he remained. They are hunting his life. They lived in tension and suspense every single day as they were hunting him down, trying to kill him. Something I think we rarely even ponder about our Lord and his life with the disciples. Now the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand, which was one of their great feasts. And his brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, if you're really the Messiah, then you must show yourself to the world. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is already. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going to this feast. For my time is not yet fully come. In verse 10, But when his brothers had gone up, they all took off. Then he also went up to the feast, but not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him, you see, at the feast. They're looking for him. They're saying, where is he? So they're sneaking around going, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? Probably came right to his brothers, probably came right to his disciples. And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Here is a very interesting thing. Some said, he is good. Others said, no, he deceives the people. It has always been that way. We are told that John tells us in another place, he says that if we claim to follow him, that we ought to walk as he walked. If we do walk as he walked, Jesus said, you will suffer what I suffered. If we are truly discipled by him and become like him, it is absolutely, totally inevitable that some will say, you are a good person godly person. Others will say, no, you deceive the people. There will always be those that think you are good, and there will always be those that think you are bad. It has never been any different since the time of Jesus. If you get that deeply seated into your mind and your heart, it will help you along the way, simply to be free from man's opinion and concerned of God's opinion, and then rest in Him when you're right with Him. Some said He is good. Some said He is a deceiver. He is evil. So they sought him, and there was much complaining, and however, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Again, the tension in the air, the danger in the air, and the immense pressure from people around 
to influence you and how you relate to Jesus Christ. So as we've looked at this passage, last time we talked about his timing in discipleship, the fact that he spent two days with the multitudes, 30,000 people, when he fed the 5,000, he spent seven months alone with about 12 men, 12 individuals. His premium that he placed on discipleship and how you can only disciple so many people. We looked at that. Then we looked at his timing in conversion and how his brothers didn't believe in him. Eventually, his brothers were converted. And then his timing in God's will, and that's what I want to get into now. Do you realize that as you track Jesus through the Gospels, he was always deeply concerned about timing. The timing of God's plan, God the Father's plan for his life. I'm personally convinced that there wasn't one day that went by that Jesus didn't contemplate his entrance into this world and his time of exiting from this world. I think about... I'm nobody. I'm just, you know, your average Christian guy. I think about my time of departure from this world every single day. I can say that without exaggeration. And that's because I realize that the time is so critical. We cannot complain that our days are few and then live as if they'll never end, right? I'm convinced Jesus never stopped thinking about that short space of time that he had to do the Father's work here with that right influence and that every move was so critical to be done right as it related to that timing. So that in verse 6 of John 7, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come. Now, that is a rich statement and surely it sweeps in the big picture. I don't know if you realize it, but if you look through the Gospel of John, what you find is that this is a big theme with John. How sensitive Jesus was to the timing in his life. So, in terms of the ultimate hour, we're talking about the cross. So when Jesus says, my time has not yet come, everything must be done rightly and properly so that he makes it safely, if I could use that word right, safely to the cross. As you follow him, for example, John 2, 4, Jesus at the wedding at Cana said to his mother, my hour is not yet come. Got to be careful how I do this. Right here, he says, my time has not yet come. And down in verse 30, it says, because his hour had not yet come, Though they sought to take him, nobody laid any hands on him. God the Father protecting him. And then in John 8, 20, it says, His hour had not yet come, as he spoke and then taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him. Again, the protection on his life. And John 12, 23, again, the hour has not yet come. John 13, 1, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, as he's under the shadow of the cross. And then in John 17, 1, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. In other words, the time of the cross, the time to die, the very reason for which he lived, for which he came into this world. So there was always that sensitivity to Jesus to the brief span of time he had in this life. He was always facing each day with what it was all leading up to. And we ought to live our lives like that as well. And he was also sensitive to time as it related to right now. The things currently at hand. 
7 verse 6 he says my time has not yet come your time is already do what you want as it relates to this feast I must be very careful I cannot just do anything as it relates to this feast so he says the world cannot hate you but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil there's great danger for me and so he says you go up to the feast I am not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come now it is relating to the immediate as well as what I said about the big picture. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But notice he was planning to go all along because it says, when his brothers had gone up, verse 10, then he also went up to the feast, but not openly, as it were, in secret. So just as we see Jesus here sensitive to God's timing in his life, we need to seek the Lord for a sensitivity to timing. It's so easy, isn't it, to, to cave into the tyranny of the urgent, to cave into the anxiety of the moment, and react in such a way that you blow yourself right out of God's timing, into your own timing. You see, the reality is, I think, that God has a plan and God has a timing, and very often His timing is not the same as ours. In fact, very often He's much too late on our timing schedule, right? We wish He would work, He doesn't. And so, we have to learn. I think we have to study and pray and think our way into sensitivity to God's timing. Someone has well said that lost time is never found. I wonder how much time you've lost in your life. I know in my life I've lost a lot. And I live with that on my mind all the time. I think of the three years that I was uh, lukewarm in the Christian life after having been a Christian about eight years. Three years of complete lukewarmness and worthlessness in the kingdom of God, totally, utterly self-willed. And all the while a Christian going to church, reading my Bible and praying. One of the things that people fail to realize is you can be reading your Bible and praying... And that doesn't mean you're going to cease to be human. It doesn't mean that things will cease to creep up on you. You can read your Bible and pray, and anything can creep up on you. Have you learned that yet? I've learned it. Lost time is never found. I moan over the time I have lost, and I look to the future to redeem it and to today and right now. Someone else well said that kill time and you will murder opportunity. What do you think about the opportunities of your life? What do you think about getting involved in God's work in your life in ways you never dreamed of? What do you think of doing above and beyond what you ever thought you were capable of? Do you know that's one of the joys of the Christian life? Early on, we all have this attitude, and it somewhat lingers with us always. How could God use me? I mean, we know ourselves, right? We know ourselves better than anybody but God. And early on we have this attitude, how could God use me? But then as we see in His grace, that little by little He uses us, and He does these amazing things, and we turn around and we look back, and we just can't believe how He used us. And then as we go along in life, and then we begin to realize He does want to use me. I can't let my own shortcomings hold me back. When I first came to Christ, I was not a Christian yet even five days. And I fell among these zealous street witnesses. And we went to this big Mardi Gras thing. It was outside at a local school, college. And, and they said, come on, we're going to witness to people openly and publicly. I said, well, what is that? 
They said, you walk up to someone you've never seen in your whole life, say hello and start talking to them. Here, hey, you hand them one of these little things. I said, what's this? A track. A track. I didn't know what a tract was. I thought it was like homes or something, you know, that they build. Anyway, I wandered around all timid and shy, and I watched these zealous brethren so full of love, and you could see the twinkle in their eyes as people were stumbling around all loaded and everything. And I got so fired up after a while, I thought, I just have to try this. I don't know anything. I didn't even know John 3.16. I didn't know anything. Well, I did. I just hardly knew anything, though. And so I, I went around and I talked to people, and the truth is, I prayed with several people that night to lead them to the Lord. And I didn't, all I knew was that once I was blind, now I see my sins were forgiven. You know, so very early on, I saw, wow, God can use me even the way I am. And then as time goes by, you're concerned that you haven't changed as much as you want. You're not as holy as you'd like to be. So you have these concerns, you know, maybe one of these days he's going to get rid of me because he's run out of patience with me and he was graceful in the beginning but now he's lost patience so he's going to pass me by. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and he said, I want to come to you and I want to, when I go by Macedonia and I want to go on my way to wherever he was traveling to, I will come to you, he said. And there's that confidence. But in spite of his weaknesses, who he was as a human, at the end of his life he said, the chief of sinners. In spite of that, he was confident God was going to keep using him. And because he knew he was seeking the Lord and right with him and all of that. But kill time and you murder opportunity. Know this, God wants to do more with you than you believe he wants to do right now. And I look at what he's done in my own life from wandering around handing out little tracks in the first week of my Christian life till now and he's done so much more than I ever dreamed and all the way along people said to me don't limit him don't put him in a box and I thank God for those encouragers because God has such a great blessed overwhelming plan for each one of us John Blanchard who stood in this pulpit Sunday has well said to waste time is to squander a gift from God and I think one of our greatest gifts because it's within the redeeming of time in our life that we go on to discover why we're here and we see God work. So we must be sensitive to God's timing in our lives. Now let me give, give you quickly just a few key thoughts that really rise out of this passage to me. One is as we seek to do that, we're going to have to face some things and think about it. And one thought is the pressure that comes from others as it relates to the timing of God in our lives, the pressure that comes from others. You see, his brothers come to him and they say, you've got to go now, and this is what you have to do, and this is why, and here's our great wisdom, nobody wanting to be openly known hides out in Galilee. Go to where the action is, go to Jerusalem. Well, good worldly wisdom. Pressure, yes, these are his brothers. Something about the pressure of family that's very great. You understand what I mean? for the good or for the bad. Some of you have family, relatives, members of your blood kin that you know if you get around them, they have a very negative effect on you. They drag you down. They do something to you mentally. You don't even know it until you get away from them and then someone says you've just been acting so peculiar. It's like some cootie jumped on your spirit, man, you know? Others in your family tree and heritage and life 
You get away from them after having been with them. You're pumped up, you're excited. They just have the most wonderful effect on you. The pressure from others is something we have to open our eyes to because it keenly affects us as it relates to what we're doing with God's timing in our lives. Jesus here did not allow men to pressure him into action. He did not allow men to pressure him into action. And it comes at us from all sides, doesn't it? I think it really begins to get intense somewhere in in the beginning of your high school days when you're pressured to decide who you're going to be. And you don't even know who you are. How can you decide who you're going to be and become when you don't even know who you are? And it goes on from there through life, pressure from others. You come to Christ, you start to surrender to His plan. People that are slightly religious in your life but don't really know the Lord. They think you're a fanatic. They want to sit you down and give you a heart-to-heart, you know, with a warm fire and, you know, a good hug. And they want to tell you how you need to cool it. You know, how you need to be religious, that's fine, but don't be fanatical. And here God has just spoken to you to leave everything in faith. You know, with the right preparation, go to the mission field somewhere. And you're sitting there looking at them eyeball to eyeball going, you bring this up now, you know, you're thinking. Why didn't you ever talk to me like this before? Sometimes we forget there's a devil, you know, and he uses people. The pressure, it's real, isn't it? It causes you to second guess everything. That's why we've got to stay so close to God and walk in His Spirit. Jesus did not allow men to pressure Him into action. Here's an interesting thought from a different angle. He will not allow us to pressure him into action either. So that now here as his children, we come to him and we pray, and we want it now. I mean, I don't know about you, but I have a few prayers I pray where I say, answer it at your leisure, Lord. Most of my prayers are, listen, this is serious, God. I want to see action now, you know. Make me holy now. Make me humble now. Make me loving now. Make me powerful now. You know, whatever. Make me a soul winner now. You see, God won't allow us to pressure Him. I thank the Lord for that. He has His timing in everything. Absolutely everything. So He answers prayers His way and in His time. I'm going to say more about that in a few minutes. So the bottom line here is we must not cave into the pressure of others. Could you just hold your finger there and turn to Psalm 23? Psalm 23, I just want you to see the first three verses. We must not cave into the pressure of others as it relates to God's timing in our life because they don't have the insight, they don't have the criteria to judge that God has. And He has it mapped out. He wants us to follow His map by the leading of the Spirit. If we're going to cave into any pressure, let it be the holy pressure of the Holy Spirit upon our hearts. You know, where you begin to get that burden, that sense that God's tugging at you and calling you into something. And usually it begins way ahead of time. So He has time to work on you so you're fit when the right time comes. But here in Psalm 23, 1, David writes and he says, The Lord is my shepherd. And what a shepherd does is he leads his flock. He makes me to lie down in green pastures, which sheep will not do until all of their needs are met. They have to be well fed. They have to sense the protection of their shepherd. They have to have the kind of relationship with him where they trust him. 
so that when we could go on with that, but when the sheep have their needs met, real needs met, then with the anxieties that are common to sheep, then they will lay down. We recently saw some sheep in a pasture and a cat, caterpillar, you know, big earth-moving thing came by making a big noise. Well, they were all fine standing around. One of the sheep looked at that thing and all of a sudden got it into his head that it was coming for him. And he took off running. And the others were just sort of standing around looking like dumb sheep. And they saw him running and one of them thought, I guess we better get out of here. You know, and so he ran. Soon they were all running. And the funny thing is, they weren't running any specific place. They just were running, like this, around and around this field. And then there were these big old ones. They were, whatever, you know, just like they weren't even interested. And then they all stopped and started looking around at each other. It was really strange. But you see, they will lie down when all their needs are met. Anxieties must be lowered. And that's what our shepherd does for us. Then he leads me beside the still waters. I love that. He leads me. So I can seek to be sensitive to the timing of God in my life in peace. In fact, that is the greatest way to know you're in the flow with God. Because if you move that way or that way out of step with the Spirit, your peace is gone. I mean, immediately. I mean, false peace doesn't last very long, does it? You can manufacture it. Well, I'm doing the right thing and... Here's how you tell false peace. Endless (laughs) self-dialogue. Right? Yak, 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 yak. Shut up in there. You know, it's like endless... (laughs) Every man's cause, every man's cause is right in his own eyes. So when you're conjuring up this false peace, you've got to keep convincing yourself. When you're in the peace of the Lord and you're in the flow with Him, you're waiting on Him, you're letting Him lead you, You have the peace that passes understanding. It flows out of the fountain within of the Holy Spirit. It's from Him. There isn't all this self-talk. In fact, that's where most of that crazy stuff, nagging stuff, is really brought to rest. That's where the greatest freedom is from that. And you just have this peace in your mind and your heart. That's how you know you're in step with God. He leads me beside the still waters as He leads me. He restores my soul and He leads me, verse 3, in the paths of righteousness for His namesake. So He leads me. If I keep in step with Him, if I am close to Him as my good shepherd, I have the confidence He will lead me. I have the peace knowing as proof that He is leading me. I'm freed from false peace and the endless dialogue in my own heart. And I have the wherewithal to not cave into the pressure of others. So, as we're sensitive to God's timing in our life, we deal with the pressure of others. Another thing we have to deal with is the persistence of Satan. The persistence of Satan. You know, the Bible says that we wrestle not with flesh and blood. And from human anatomy, we go straight into the heavenlies to principalities powers, spiritual wickedness in high places. It's well-organized armies of Satan. But on the other hand, you read that and you can go, well then, why am I worried about this person over here? But on the other hand, Paul writes and he says that Satan himself can appear as an angel of light and certainly the men and women, people in this world that he uses are flesh and blood. 
what we have to discern is that the power motivating, pushing them, behind them, whatever, is from Satan. Thus, we don't take the actions of the people too seriously. We don't let it interfere with our prayers for them and all of that. And we understand that he is going to dog our heels. I think that's a good term for the devil. Dog our heels until we go to be with the Lord. I mean, think of the life of Jesus. Where was Satan's activity when the Lord was born? Well, he tried to kill him, right? All the young infants died under Herod's order. Flesh and blood gave the order, but who was behind it? Satan. When Peter walks up to Jesus, he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, Peter, you can see him put his arm around. Your Father in heaven showed you that. That is good. That's a revelation. Not long, as they're walking down the road later. Peter, listening to Jesus, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I will be betrayed by the chief priests, the scribes. On the motivation of them with the Roman government, I will die. Peter throws a fit, effectively. He pulls Jesus aside. The Bible says he took him. He took him. Pulled him away from everybody. Excuse me, fellas. I'm going to have to counsel the Lord here for a minute. He took him. And you can see Peter waving his arms around. Is everybody living here, you know? And Jesus listens for a little bit, and then he stops him. And he says, you don't even know what you're saying. And then he rebuked Satan, right? So that he goes right beyond Peter to the power of the devil behind him, and he rebukes the devil. Why? Because here's this great onslaught of powered by the devil about the cross again. Persistence. It's there all the way along. And he uses people all the way along. You find Jesus after his baptism in the wilderness and there's the devil tempting, tempting, tempting. Then the Bible says after he resisted him that the devil left him for a season. In other words, he never gave up. You find him in the garden. You find him at the cross. Everywhere there are people. There is the power of the devil. And not always people. But the persistence of Satan is always there as it was in the life of Jesus to derail us from God's timing. And we must watch for that and stand against him. And the way we stand against him, the Bible says, stand and resist the devil and having done all to be remaining standing. So we submit ourselves to God, which is what we talked about a few minutes ago. He leads me and we resist the devil and he leads us Thus, we will not cave into the pressure from others and we will stand against the persistence of Satan. Now, one of the most depressing things about Satan is indeed his persistence. I mean, people come and go in your life, right? He's just always around. You know, him or one of his demons. And the idea is that after the long haul, it starts to get to you. And that's when you really need to get refreshed and and again, stand against his persistence. Let me take you to a third thought here. And that is this. You watch for the pressure from others, the persistence of Satan, but then you under, begin to understand this. That one of the critical issues of God's timing in your life is his glory. The preeminence of his glory. In other words, as he works with you, as he cares for you, as a good shepherd, as he loves you and meets your needs... One of the main things, in fact, above everything else that he wants to do is reveal his glory in your life. So that when you pray, 
when God responds, whether it's a day later or a year later or ten years later, when you pray and God responds to a certain prayer, well, He always does it in such a way that He will get the most glory. In other words, that your, your perception of God will get bigger and bigger. Donald Gray Barnhouse told the story of one of his professors who had taught so many of them and then he had gone on and to other things from the seminary and he used to love to come back and just visit and sit and listen to the teachers the guys that had grown up and become professors themselves and and to see guys come back as guest speakers and teach and all of that and he would sit in the back and just listen and, and one day Barnhouse said why do you do that what are you what are you looking for he said I'm looking for this have these fellows become big godders or little godders? Is God big to them or is God little to them after all this time? He said, my great concern is that all these students would become big godders. May I say to you, it is God's great concern that all of you would be big godders, not little godders. Thus, often God doesn't respond to your prayers because He's drawing you out into his timing to turn you into a big godder. Can I give you a wonderful illustration from the Bible? It is the account of Lazarus. Could you turn in your Bible to John 11? We'll get there in the future, but we'll peek at it now. Besides, so who knows when the future is? <laughs> John 11, 1. So you read that a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany. And this is, of course, Lazarus, who was the friend of Jesus, Mary and Martha. They were his dear friends. So in verse 3, therefore his sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, here's a little loving pressure. He whom you love is sick. Now, I know you care about sick people, but can't touch them all. He who you love. This is your dear friend, Lord. You must answer this prayer. You must answer this request. Surely you will. And when Jesus heard that, he said, The sickness is not unto death. And here's the key. But for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. You see, often we pray and then God answers. And we tend to think it was just natural events and we forget to go back and say, Lord, thank you so much. We come in, God, I need help now. Money, Lord, money. Lord, you've got to bring it in now, and here's the amount, and you have to do this, Lord. Then the phone rings the next day. Some rich uncle, who's not yet dead, but will be, and rich. He calls and he says, you know, I was just thinking about you, and I might as well just send you the money now before I die, so you can enjoy it, and I can watch you do it. So I'm going to send you, you know, Four million. Will that, well, maybe five. Will that be enough? You know? Well, you know. Okay, six. So he sends you six million. And that's the very next day. And then you go back to prayer the very next day and you say, Lord, you don't need to answer my prayer. My rich uncle sent me six million. Not realizing God had your rich uncle send you the six million. And what happens then is we go through life like that. God is so smooth. Nobody is smoother than God. God is so smooth that when He answers, there's never even a hiccup. Just not a ripple. It's so smooth, it just fits. 
But sometimes because he's so smooth, we fail to see it's him. Thus, we're not becoming big godders. We're just saying, oh, well, she got well. Yeah, it, wasn't, it wasn't a sickness and a death. She would have gotten well anyway. So they come. Lord, your dear friend Lazarus, now he's sick. And uh, the one you love. So please come and heal him. And the Bible says that he loved them. And he, he loved them. When he heard he was sick, he stayed two more days on purpose. Oh, he's sick. Well, let's not go anywhere, guys. Can you imagine how that aggravated them? So they have to go home. So they go ahead. Then after this, he said to his disciples, Okay, let us go to Judea again. So he just waits around. Then the disciples said to him, Pressure from others, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. Are you going there again? You shouldn't go there, Lord. Lord, we've all talked about it. We've decided you better not go there. Think again about this, Lord. Pressure from others. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? And so on and so on. So then, verse 11, These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I might wake him. And his disciples said, Well, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. He must be doing better. He's sleeping soundly and he's getting better. You know, he'll be all right. And Jesus says to them that he spoke of his death. Jesus spoke of his death. And then he says in verse 14, Plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes I was not there. That is the strangest answer, isn't it? Until you understand what he has in mind. And they don't see it yet. They think he's risking his life needlessly. And Mary and Martha, two of his closest friends, thinks that this loving Jesus has been become Messiah Coldheart. You know, that he's no longer what he was. And he is everything he's ever been and more and about to show that to them. But they must wait. So, I'm glad for your sakes I was not there. Verse 15. Why? That you may believe. I want your belief to go up. Nevertheless, let's go. So in verse 17, when Jesus came, he found he had already been in the tomb four days. Now, if you've been over in that part of the country, you know the heat. And you understand that they didn't have all the high-tech things we have. Four days in the tomb. By now, he's rotting in there. He gets there. Martha comes to him in verse 20. As soon as she heard Jesus was coming, she went and met him, and Mary was over in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, you you can see the look on her face. She's mad. I mean, here's Jesus who doesn't care anymore. She says to Jesus, you can hear the sarcasm in her voice, the frustration in her voice. Lord, if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. What is happening to you? This is one of your closest friends. It's a rebuke, effectively. Certainly probably respectful, but a rebuke nonetheless. Verse 20, she comes. Verse 21, she basically rebukes him. She doesn't know how far off she is in a rebuke. Verse 22, But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, He'll give it to you. Kind of like a disclaimer. But I know, Lord, you you got things under control. In verse 23, Jesus hauls right off and He says, Your brother will rise again. Fly by. It's like, I know, afterwards. In the afterlife, of course. And in verse 24, Martha said to him, I know he'll rise again the resurrection on the last day. She's missing the point. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And do you understand how far-reaching that is? Do you understand that your brother's body is dead? 
but I am the Prince of Life. And I am in touch with the reality of where he is even now. And I'm going to demonstrate that my touch goes far beyond the grave. I am the resurrection. I am the life. I am in charge of all souls. I can quicken. I can do whatever. That's the setup. She said, Lord, I believe you're the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world. That's all I know. And so you can see her frustration. Then she goes and she calls Mary, her sister. And in verse... 32, then Mary came to where Jesus was, and she saw him, and she fell down at his feet, saying to him, she's frustrated. And she says, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Same thing. Why haven't you responded, Lord? You ever been there? Weeping before God, why haven't you responded? And therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in his spirit, and he was troubled Troubled at the effect of sin, troubled at their unbelief, troubled at their lack of big godder mentality, troubled about all these things. How troubled. Verse 34, and he said, Where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And then isolated all by itself. Shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. You understand why he wept? Here are the, the closest people to him in his life in terms of just friends other than the disciples. They're angry with him. They're frustrated with him. He knows they think he's become unloving, and he hasn't. He's about to do the most loving thing he has ever done. He's about to reveal more of his power and take them up to another level in a greater way than he has ever done. And all they can do is be angry with him. You understand why he would weep? Jesus wept, and the Jews said, See how he loved him. <laughs> he missed the whole thing. Oh, he's crying because he died. That has nothing to do with it. See how he loved him. And then verse 37, And some of them said, Now they're joining in. The crowd around. They're watching the two women, his close friends. Now the, the fringe people join in. And they start in. Could not this man who have opened the eyes of the blind also kept this man from dying? Oh, he's the great Messiah. He's the great physician. He's the big miracle. Mr. Power Man. Mr. Love. Couldn't he have healed this guy if, if, for that? And now, you know, they're all around him. There's this whole vibe in the air. And then Jesus, again, look at verse 38, groaning in himself. He's grieved. And he came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And he said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said, Lord, by now there's a stench, for he's been dead four days. Classic old King James line, By now he stinketh. <laughs> But now he stinketh. He's rotting. In other words, here's the difference between a big godder and a little godder. In other words, Lord, it's one thing for you when we come and say he's sick to get him well. That's, you know, we can understand that's within your scope of ability and power. But to talk about a rotting guy stinking in the grave by now in their four days, decomposing. <laughs> well... Lord, that's just going too far. And we know that you really can't do anything about that. You see that? Do you see yourself there? Lord, this one is just too big for you. And if you would only done what I asked you to do, what I told you to do, if you would have just done what I told you to do, everything would be fine. I mean, because you could have healed him sick, dead and rotting. No, you can't help him. This is beyond your reach. What a scene. 
And so in verse 40, he repeats now what he said in the beginning. Did I not say to you, if you would believe, you would see the glory of God. Don't you see that I'm in control of all this? Verse 41, And they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he said, Father, there's where the comfort is in the midst of that kind of experience, right? People all around you, misjudging you, misunderstanding. Father, I thank you. You and I have known all along what this is all about. Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. You see, Jesus, you don't hear us. You don't care about us. Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I thank you that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this. I don't even have to pray this out loud. I'm letting them in on what we have together, the relationship they are to be brought into with you. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he said these things, I love this. He goes from grieving, he goes into praying and resting the Lord, thanking God. And then you can see him straighten up, the power of the Holy Spirit surging through him. He opens his mouth and his voice booms forth and he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And I love what Chuck Smith always said, that he had to use his name, of course, (laughs) because with that kind of power, every person who had ever died would have come bursting out of the grave. (laughs) So he narrowed it down. You've got to channel that kind of power right. Verse 44, and I love the term here, the phrase, and he who had died. John writing years later, thinking about this, remembering he had been already dead, how great this was. He who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was wrapped with a cloth and Jesus said to them loose him and let him go and it's almost like I'm going to leave it to you to let this all sink in and now you know why I waited because I wanted you to see that I am far more than you ever dreamed that I am and I wanted you to grow into that great great trust in me and become a big godder. That's effectively where he left it. So, if we're going to have God's timing in our life, we deal with the pressure from others. We don't cave into it. We are in touch with God. We deal with the persistence of Satan, and we understand the place of the preeminence of God's glory as God's timing is exercised in our life to take us up into a greater understanding and appreciation for the power and the mind and the glory of God. And then there's another thing we need to deal with, and that is the priority of His plan. God has a plan for your life. He has a plan for your influence. He has a plan for your ministry. He has a plan for how many people in your life. And He has a plan for how that will all unfold. And it's different for every one of you. I mean, how many of you have ever um, planted flowers? Look at the flower planters in this place. You notice how they don't all come up on the same day? Where you walk out and it's like, here we are. You know, we're all up. They don't all come out on the same day. One comes out, especially those bulb things, you know. One comes out and you're thinking, well, what's wrong with all the other ones? One flower here? And then all of a sudden, another and another and another. We all blossom forth in different ways. In God's timing, in God's way. There is that priority of His plan. 
You come to God and you pray and you want an answer now. You want God to change you to this thing now. You want God to get you out of what you've been doing now and give you some variety, some newness, greater level of effectiveness. Sometimes you bring these prayers to God and the answer you think is no because the silence of heaven. But the answer is not no often. The answer is effectively I have every intention of responding to this prayer. But you've got to give me room to do it my way and give me the space of time. And it is often because he needs to mold you. And most of us, if not all of us, generally overestimate our own growth because of our pride. And we tend to think we're often greater than we are. Either that or the extreme of we're so worthless we can't use us at all. But as we've been growing and as we've been serving, there is always the potential of pride to puff us up and think we've grown farther, more experienced, better tempered than we are. And we don't know that where God is taking us, that it will be so difficult, it will blow us right out of the saddle unless we let Him temper us further. I don't ever, I've never met a guy who wanted to be in the ministry that didn't think he was ready far, far earlier than he was. And the ones that rush off and get out of step with God's timing, they get battered around so badly, they're not ready to cope with what they think they're able to do. And often, they are indeed gifted and called to such a thing. And yet, they jump out of God's timing, and as a result, they're not effective in the way they could be or should be in God's timing. And the personal pain and frustration is so great because they weren't ready for it. Spurgeon used to say, if you want to get in the ministry, he would say to the men in his pastor's college, if, if you feel called to the ministry, you better make sure you are or it'll basically chill you. You know, and he said, do anything else in life if you can. That's what he actually said. Those are the exact words. If you could be happy as a lawyer, happy as a doctor, happy as an Indian chief, do it. But if you cannot, then... Go ahead and let God lead you, but may it be in His time, because to be put there when you're not ready for it, it will annihilate you. And there is a lot of truth in that, not just for the pastorate, but for many levels of ministry. There is a priority of His plan. He's often molding you, intending to answer your prayers. Do you understand that? In the Bible, you have the account of Hannah. Did you ever read that? For the sake of time, I'll sum it up real quick. You have the account of Hannah, and Hannah was barren. She couldn't have children, and she was agonizing over it. And Elkanah, her husband, was, had, had another wife. And he was, they're having all these children. And Hannah had no children. And the years are going by, and she's frustrated. And she's praying, and praying, and praying. And one day she comes in to Elkanah, her husband, and she says, I just, just really want a son. And he comes over. You know, men so often don't understand women. He comes over and he says, Am not I better to you than many sons? And it's like, no. I'd trade you in if I had to, to get one, you know. Gladly let you go just for one. You're not better. You're different, you know. He didn't understand. Then she's agonizing before God one day, and Eli comes in, he sees her, and she's just, you know, in prayer. And she's so agonizing in prayer, and probably just walking around just in grief and... He thinks she's drunk, so he comes in to rebuke her for being drunk. What's the big idea, drunk in here praying? She says, I'm not drunk. 
I'm burdened with the care of this thing. Anyway, finally, the time goes by, 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 by. Finally, all the while, God is working on her. All the while, God is molding her. All the while, she's saying, give me a son. God is basically going to. By the time he does, he has so worked in her life that she is able to be the kind of mother to raise the kind of son up to send off to the ministry because Eli and his sons, who were the high priests in, the, in that priestly office over Israel, were corrupt. Eli was a weak, spineless father. Loved the Lord, but spineless. He let his sons be wicked. They were defiling Israel. The whole place was a mess, the whole nation. God needed a man, but he couldn't find a man. They were all wimped out or sinned out. And so he needs a man. You know what he did? To get the man he needed, he needed a woman first. He needed the kind of woman of God who, given a brief time with her son, when he came, would be the kind of influence on him that as he grew, he would be the man that God needed for the nation. That was her son. By the time he was born, she said, Lord, you can have him. I will give him to you, to your service. I'm so thankful just to have a son from you. You just let me know how to raise this guy. And when he was weaned, she took him up and he went right on into the ministry for the rest of his life. And he was that man for the nation. May I suggest that if early on in her life, when she said, I want a baby now, God, if God had just said, fine, fine, you don't want to wait now? Here, have a baby, have five, fine. Can you imagine she would have been so happy with her five, but not near as happy as to have the son, Samuel, who would be the mighty man of God in Israel that he was. The blessing that came in God's timing was so much greater than if God had simply caved into her orders in her prayers. Understand? And the blessing that comes in your life is so much greater when you are willing to wait and understand that God intends to work. He intends to answer. But it must be in His time if the blessing is to be the greatest for you and if your influence is to be the greatest as He answers and it will all come together as He molds you and brings His timing and then answers, it will be the best. There's only one thing left after that in the timing of God. You know what it is? It's patience to learn to be patient and then to have patience with faith so that when God moves in your heart, and you've waited, you've been molded, and he moves, you're ready to move out in faith. And know this, the enemy in Satan's kingdom, he will not allow it to be easy. If all these years of preparation have gone into your life, and God says, now, do you think Satan will go sit back and go, yeah, do it, I give up? No, it's kind of like this. Bring in the reinforcements, you know? Bring in the fresh troops. And suddenly it's a greater bombardment than you've ever had. That's why it must be God's timing in God's strength. There must be patience, but then when it's time to go, you're going to have to go in faith. And I'll leave you with this idea. The king, in the book of Esther, got mad at his wife, Vashti. So he got rid of her. And he sent his guys out and they found Esther and they brought her in and they basically had her in there, taking care of her for a long time. Finally, he decides he wants Esther as his queen. In Esther's life, what is this? I mean, she's just walking along, seeking the Lord one day, taken out of her house, must live with the king, never gets to see her friends. 
fleeting moments with her uncle, you know, of just saying hi and a little fellowship and encouragement. And then the time goes by, and there's this great plot to kill all the Jews from Haman. And Mordecai comes in one day, and Esther hadn't seen the king in a long time. And if he went into the king unannounced, he might just put out his scepter, which said, come in. Or he might just say, you never come in to see me unannounced, therefore you're going to die. Because that was the penalty, coming in unannounced. So here's this great scene, and Mordecai comes in to Esther, and he says, look, you're going to have to do something. You're a Jew. They may not know it. They may not understand it. But then he said these classic words to her, because she's going, I don't know. I don't think so. You know, if I go in unannounced, I'm going to die. And if he's in a bad mood, if he's in a good mood, fine. But if he's in a bad mood, I mean, he hasn't called for me in the longest time. Maybe he doesn't like me anymore. The chances are he'll kill me. And Mordecai gives this great, great thing that sums up everything we've said because you can miss the timing of God and miss His blessing in your life and miss Him using you. In Esther 4.14, he says, But if you remain silent at this time, this time, Mordecai says to Esther, Then relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. He said, But you and your family will perish. And he says, and who knows, but that you have come to this royal position. And you've been wondering all this time, and Mordecai is saying, I'm going to tell you right now why you have been here all this time. Because you're the one to step out now in faith and save your people. And you know, I love her attitude. She said, all right, Mordecai, I, if I perish... I perish, but it's time to step out in faith. It is God's time. And God blessed it, and she saved her people. And she's a hero in the Bible because she was sensitive to God's time. We must be too. Shall we pray? Lord, thank you. Thank you, thank you, Lord, for your great wisdom, your great insight. And thank you, Lord, that you have not caved into our pressure upon you so often in our frustration, our lack of insight, our lack of foresight, and our lack of beholding you as a big God. We've become frustrated with you. We've become angry with you, not knowing all the while that you were going to meet the need of the situation, going to answer the prayer in a way that was above and beyond what we ever imagined. So, Lord, help us now in the future to walk in step with you, to trust you, have patience with you and we will be very careful to give you all the glory as your kingdom comes to us each one and your will is done through us each one and we ask these things in Jesus name Amen